I, I have not patronized any of these brand new restaurants. So there's like two or three of them, right? I mean, obviously there's the peanut butter and jelly place. Um, which <laughs> $350 <laughs> peanut butter and jelly. It is 2008 all over again. Oh, good Lord. I, I, it's just like when I used when I got the spring water ice delivered packed in other ice because money didn't exist anymore. And, you know, they would send reporters literally anything for five cents with a coverage. This is Food at a Radio, is all dressed up and has no place to go. Three months ago, Anthony Todd was writing the Dish Food News column for Chicago Magazine. Since then, he's had to fall back on being an attorney to get by. Ordinarily, he'd have been the first person I turned to for insight into the Chicago food world with a podcast like this. But I decided to hold him off, to see how he was doing and what he's growing in his backyard garden in Lincoln Square after a few months of COVID-19 lockdown. So now he's the last person on this current series. Yes, this is the last episode in the current run of Food Eater Radio. I started this series when the lockdown started, because I thought lots of people were doing good coverage of coronavirus news in the restaurant world. But I wanted to do something else, to capture how we felt as it changed radically week to week. After 15 weeks, I feel like things have reached a steadier state, and the podcast could start to get repetitive. So I'm stopping it for now, though it may come back from time to time as events continue to unfold, or as I just find someone else I want to talk to. Anyway, speaking of someone to talk to, here's Anthony Todd, as we talk about the big shutdown of the week, whether we're ready to sit in restaurants yet, what he's growing, and more. Holy crap, Blackbird. Yeah. I, shed, I shed actual non-fake, non-internet tears last night. Yeah, I don't know if I did that, but I definitely was like, I had that the world is coming to an end pit in my stomach. I mean, we really had not had a big loss. I saw them in other cities, major famous long-term restaurants closed. And about the biggest one we had, I, I'm probably going to insult somebody here, but income tax. And I mean, I, I really liked income tax, but it's like a neighborhood place. It wasn't nationally known. So we we're kind of waiting for the big one to drop. And this is the big one. Yeah, and it reminds me almost of back in 2008, 2009, when, you know, obviously restaurants were going to fail, very different situation, but obviously restaurants were going to fail, and they started failing fast. But there was this sense that the ones that were failing were the ones that were already kind of on the edge anyway, that weren't quite making it, that were having financial problems, et cetera, et cetera. And then I remember when big ones started to go. <laughs> and it's the same sort of feeling here, where, you know, this is the moment when I realized what I realized in my head, I realized in my gut, which is that in a year when we're out of this, the restaurant industry is going to be completely different. It's not a matter of putting your head down and doing your best and selling interesting takeout. It's, gosh, places that I really like are going to be gone. And they're going to be gone. gone soon. Yeah. Well, and that's the thing. I mean, we're recording this a week from when it will go up. So who knows? <laughs> they might all be gone. One-off one hospitality might no longer exist. <laughs> well, all right. So, no, seriously, I don't think that will be the case. And I think one of the things no one has talked about, I mean, I've been saying for at least a year, all food stories are really real estate stories at this point. And yeah. I suspect what we're going to see close are the ones that are in a position on their lease where it just makes sense. And you think Blackbird opened in 98 
So that's that would be 25 years in 2023. That could easily, I mean, I have no idea what their lease is, but that could easily be. They're keeping the be, space for the moment, at least. Did you read this? They're keeping the space. Yeah. So apparently. Well, what so they doing, have a lease on the yeah. space. Yeah. Yeah. So I think here's what happened from my perspective, reading between the lines is that they, they are keeping the Avec brand going. I've been getting a ton of emails about it. There's yes. you, you've eaten there remotely. And there was at least one of the stories, and I don't remember which one, that said that they were using the Blackbird space to provide additional social distancing support, kitchen support, restrooms for Avec. And so for me, what it seems like might have happened is that one-off said, look, we're not having in-person dining for a long time. Blackbird doesn't work for in-person dining socially distanced, and the Avec brand remains hot and suitable for takeout. So if one has to get sacrificed, Blackbird makes more sense to sacrifice. We can use the facility to pump out more takeout food at Avec and, you know, keep one of the two going. And that, that's sort of what I got the sense was going on. Not not in any malicious way, just in an economic realism yeah. kind of way. No, I think it's it's triage of, of your brands if you have multiple restaurants. I think the big groups are going to get rid of the hotel restaurants that people didn't love and one-off got out of Nico Osteria. Um you know, but then it's it's just a matter of does the space work in the new reality if the new reality lasts for months and months ahead. And exactly. also, I think what you're going to see in a lot of cases, whether or not it's true of Blackbird, is how much time is left on this lease. Do, you know, do we want to gear up to save a place that only has another year and a half, say, on its lease? Or is just this just the time to kill it and be done? And I think that's going to be the case for a lot of places. It'll just make sense to to get out of it. Yeah, I think that's just right. And I think you've got to imagine that every group that owns, you know, more than two restaurants is engaged in this thought process. You know, if you're one-off hospitality, you're thinking, gosh, Avec is going to do really well in this reality because it's food travels and it, you know, a lot of people, it, it's not going to do dine-in anyway in this new reality. So if we could come up with something, we can come up with something. Big Star is going to do great. Big Star yeah. can do delivery and takeout. They're, they're going to rock it. You know, Violet Hour, well, depends on the rent and the lease and what you just said. You know, they can do takeout cocktails and they can do cocktail kits, but that's not enough to maintain uh, a large space. Now that said, it's been open for so long, I don't know what their real estate deal there is. And you can sort of go down the list and you can kind of estimate which ones are going to go. I believe with uh, Violet Hour, just like with Cafe Concale, which did close, I think both of those are things that Terry Alexander has absurdly long leases on, probably reaching close to the end of them. Uh, you know, when you consider that he had Soul Kitchen in the Cafe Concali space in the mid 90s, you know, that's that's got to be a 30 year lease close to ending. Yeah. Um, but nevertheless, OK, so those those places, they may just hang on because they've had them forever and they've put several concepts in there over time. You know, Violet Hour was Del Toro before that and Mod before that and so on. Mm -hmm. um, but, yeah, I mean, it's just everybody's looking at these things. How bad is the exposure? Does this concept work for the new world? The thing that I think it shows about the new world is it's a lot more Big Star and a lot less Blackbird. It's gonna be yeah. it's gonna be bigger spaces that do quick turnover, um, and it's not and it's you know stuff that isn't it's stuff that travels well if it's doing a lot of to go business. It's stuff that isn't fancy froofy and has a fine level of service because nobody can hire servers right now because 
they're all being paid unemployment and they don't have to expose themselves to COVID that way. So, you know, that's, that's the shape of our new restaurant world revealing itself this week. Yeah. I think a couple of other interesting things that I've been thinking a lot about is, you know, there's going to be an interesting question now that we're headed towards when we record this, we're heading towards not a second peak, but the revelation that the first peak never ended. Um, that hasn't hit as much in Chicago. Though Chicago's numbers haven't gone down as much as people would have liked. And looking at pictures I'm seeing from Wrigleyville and Boys Town and things over the last couple of weeks, especially last weekend, I would not be surprised if we follow probably not as tragically, but in the same vein as Texas and Florida, just because we underestimated how, how uh, contagious this thing would be in the summer with outdoor dining. And so, so I guess that reason I say that is because there's sort of two alternatives. I think if indoor dining, even at 25%, continues to be allowed and we still maintain that path, you're going to see an interesting set of restaurants, somewhat unpredictably from their before times identity, be able to succeed almost entirely because they have a combination of destination and enormous space. So I got an email about proxy reopening and I'm right. like, perfect. Proxy is the COVID restaurant because yeah. their space is so big and it can, they, can, they can keep social distancing and have no problems whatsoever. And their food is so distinctive that people are willing to go there and it can compete in the marketplace. But all those sort of medium-sized restaurants, like I think about every Brendan Sotokoff Hogstall property, all those medium-sized, super interesting restaurants are going to be able to fit nine tables in them. And I just don't know if the economics are ever going to work for those places. Unlike sort of the, like Bellamore. I saw someone going to Bellamore recently and I'm like, Bellamore is a good COVID restaurant because you can open that private dining space and move the tables off to the walls and everybody's happy. But like, on the other hand, I can't imagine a universe where some of these places are able to reopen profitably. Right. No, I think a lot of them have already said it's just going out of business slower because you can only serve, you know, 16 people in a, in a, great big space yeah band of bohemia is one that i think of i mean they they've got the room so they can probably open up but but it's a weird world where we have a super hot real estate market making it so you can only open big expensive restaurants and then you can only have enough tables to be a small restaurant within them you know how does how does that add up for anybody the only thing i can imagine i can imagine a sort of temporary reality where you know I, i suspect there's obviously a real estate boom going on in terms of residential real estate. But I think all of us who work in the corporate universe see the writing on the wall, which is that especially for the next year, but even afterwards, all of these enormous corporations with massive real estate budgets are realizing like we don't need to have all this space. Our employees are doing just fine not coming into the office or sharing offices or et cetera. We're not going to use all this space potentially ever, but at least for a couple of years. And you wonder if there's going to be interesting uh, adaptations to that. You know, our place is going to be able to say, gosh, there's 10,000 square feet in office space downtown. Can we adapt it to something interesting in the social distancing era? I don't, I don't know, but weirder things have happened in previous real estate collapses when people have adapted interesting spaces for other things. Yeah, no, absolutely. You know, it's, it's funny. I think back to around the time of the dot-com crash and I was working from home a lot, either like Two days a week I was working at home or I would just work from home until we had a meeting or whatever. And back then, I got to say, it worked for about two years anywhere. And then no matter that you were saving them money, they would eventually decide that you were getting away with something that you were you were not fully focused on their work at you know eight hours a day as if anyone ever is 
And, you know, they, and so it would, it would just come to a natural end. I just kind of had that built into my anticipation from, for taking a gig somewhere. And, you know, advertising obviously being a different kind of business where you do bounce around an awful lot and don't worry about it. But nevertheless, um, you know, there was a certain hostility to work from home. And I feel like we've probably crossed the point where everybody likes working from home now and corporations are going to start understanding the advantages for them. And, you know, so that's, that's it. The, the working in an office thing that lasted from, you know, the industrial revolution to now is, is maybe over. Yeah, but that also think about the ramifications for the restaurant industry that that has, you know, is any given the residential commercial balance in the loop, you know, there's going to be an enormous number of restaurants that even if they can open, don't have an audience anymore because you don't have thousands of people in the loop after work. You don't have a happy hour crowd. You don't have any of that stuff. Well, so they all, all depended on lunch. You know, it's not like those places yeah. ever did big dinner business. Some of them found ways to do better dinner business, but that's kind of the it. Yeah, but I just think about all these high, because remember, for the last couple of years, the story has been over and over and over again, and it never was quite as much as it was made out to be, but it's been over and over and over again. The Loop is finally going to be a dining destination. The Loop is finally going to be a dining destination. And there are some of these large, high-budget projects, be they food halls or be they places like Gibson's Italia and prestige buildings. And those places, I just can't imagine how they actually survive in a post-business crowd era. You know, they can't even once again, even if they can open, which they're all enormous, so probably they could. I just don't know what happens to them. I can't imagine they have enough of an audience to survive. Yeah, yeah. Now, I know. Remember food halls? Remember how there was a food hall opening every week? I just, you know. Yeah, I feel bad for the investors. And I, I, I must admit, even though it was one of the last stories I wrote, I'm blanking on the name of, of um, Michael Cornick's new food hall that opened in the, uh, opened oh, right, in the loop. Yeah. The one that was themed to the World's Plumbing Exposition, and it's sad that my my memory is failing me, but I remember, you know, them talking about the numbers and how much money they'd invested in that thing, and with two full service restaurants and the whole nine yards, and that place probably didn't even make it six months. And I really doubt they're going to reopen. I hope they do because it sounded amazing. I never got to go. Yeah, I went to a preview for it. Yeah, no, I know it was open. For, yeah, for like two weeks, and then suddenly COVID, and that's the end of that. Yeah. Um, well, let's let's get back to Blackbird specifically. Let's wax nostalgic about Blackbird for a minute. <laughs> sure. um, so it was funny that, you know, when I was being dragged on uh, Instagram, uh, someone found my official picture, which is me in a sport jacket, extremely white as I am, and decidedly male and so on. Uh <laughs> And dragged me for the picture. And what I thought was funny about that was it was one that David Hammond snapped very casually at Blackbird. And I was kind of making, uh, you know, sort of doofy faces, you know, my lips pursed and my eyebrows raised and all that. And just one of them was like not goofy like that. So I was sort of making fun of of you know exactly what they're then dragging me for uh in this picture snapped at blackbird and that's my image it's like okay yes you're yeah. right that's me 
Um, so salute Blackbird. I raise, as I did in that picture, a, uh, you know, a flute of champagne and make a goofy face to, uh, the memory of Blackbird. Yeah, I must admit, and this is going to sound awful. You know, I, I, I understand the importance that Blackbird represents. I understand all of it. I enjoyed all my dining experiences there. I, I will admit that it never held the sort of deep sentimental attachment to me that it does for so many Chicago diners and especially so many chefs. You know, it's ne- it, it was never my style of restaurant. I don't love crowded and sterile white. But I, even I, who don't love it and would have always rather go to a vet, I, I can understand why it's so important and how it was that thing where, you know, and someone, I, I don't remember who made this comment, but someone was commenting that, you know, in reality, if you look at it, hopefully it wasn't you, Blackbird probably had more to do with Chicago food now than Trotters ever did. You know, yeah, they're iconic, but like Blackbird was the one that everyone actually wanted to emulate, right? No, I, I always said something similar to that, which was outside of Chicago, Trotter and Alinea were the restaurants that everyone looked at. Within Chicago, Blackbird was the one that everyone looked at. Exactly. It's, it's you know, exactly. you know ne- neither the first of farm to table or that sort of downtown West Loop buzzing hipness or anything like that. I'm sure you could find other places that match this or that, but it just happened to come at the right moment and really take off in that way. Um, I remember... You remember Rhea? Did you ever go to Rhea in the mm-hmm. Asian Hotel? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, which was so determined to open, you know, it would be a good restaurant for this moment because it was big plush chairs set far apart in this kind of quiet men's club, uh, you know, like British men's club, the type where if you ruffle your newspaper too loud, you know, crotchety old guys look at you and go, <clears throat> but uh, <laughs> you know, to me, it had that feel. And Blackbird always went for you know buzz for feeling like it was busy downtown even when that was you know that space over on west randolph was like being on the edge of the apocalypse at at that point but nevertheless you know it felt like downtown excitement and i'm sure that was mainly an economic decision how many tables can we squeeze in here but a lot of things about yep. restaurants are an economic decision that becomes your aesthetic at that point it was fine dining with the hum of manny's or something and it was all that farm to table stuff i mean one of my indelible memories is being in beautiful white blackbird and paul con comes out of the kitchen in like a meat juice stained apron on front that looks like he just murdered a sous chef. And <laughs> that's just who he was. You know, I'm, I'm back there cutting up meat. What do you think is on your plate? So, um, you know, I just, it had all that, that energy and, and commitment to food and that spread, you know, the gospel of Blackbird spread across the city. And for those of us who are a little bit of design nerds, I mean, it also, you, you couldn't walk past that restaurant without having your eye drawn toward it. And that they had, it somehow managed to combine that with the food you just described, which was rare. You know, I actually literally, while we were talking, just pulled a book off my shelf that I remember buying uh, when I first moved to Chicago. It has a publication date of 2005, and I moved here in 2004, and it was a design book about cool restaurants in Chicago from a German publishing company, and one of those architecture books. And A, the only restaurant in here that is now still open and still looks anything like it looked back then is Avec, literally the only yeah. one left. Everything else in here is closed, either in 2008 or recently. But, you know, Blackbird is number two in here, and you look at it in this glossy photograph, and you're like, yeah, this made people feel like they were in, 
you know, some kind of European design magazine, but it had the kind of food that Chicago people actually wanted to eat and a comfortable atmosphere and Paul Kahn wandering through the dining room in bloody shirts, right? <laughs> and so it sort of was, it sort of was that perfect hybrid that, you know, the fancy restaurants are too fancy and the not fancy restaurants would never make it into the design books, but Blackbird somehow threaded the needle and so few places, uh, so few places managed to do that, even now actually managed to do that. Yeah, but they're all the ones that I love because it's honest food. It's dressed up, but it's not fussed beyond, you know, beyond recognition. You know, it's it's food that that you can see the ingredient, you can taste the quality of the ingredient. Um, yeah, it's just it is the things that we think of as as our local virtues. So I'm I'm happy to give it credit. You know, whether or not it's your place, I mean. I'm sure you're like me. There's certain places that that's that's my place, and another place, oh, that's a good restaurant, but I don't have a natural affection for it. But even if it isn't your place, it's you know you, you, the places that are your place owe something to Blackbird. So it's true. The other thing that made me think, and a lot of the last thing I would think of on this is you know it, because we can't have a conversation between the two of us on recording without talking about Michelin. Um, <laughs> you know it. If you think about the places, you know, if you look at the stars, right? Like, I think this is the first star to just give up the ghost and close. Um, though some have been paused and not reopened and you don't really know what's going to happen to them, right? Uh, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm guessing that Yugen is not coming back. <laughs> yeah, I, I spent a minute last night, like, going through the list and being like, gosh, are we going to have any Michelin-starred restaurants after this is over? And, you know, and the reason is not because of Michelin, though Michelin is a killer. It's because, you know, Mich the things Michelin loves are the things the COVID era can't sustain, right? And so, you know, I'm not sure. I literally am looking through this list, and I'm not sure that almost anything on here is going to survive. You know, we're going to have a Michelin list that has four restaurants on it by the time this COVID thing is over well, in two years. I don't know. I disagree about the top level because they can space the tables out. And they can charge yes. the price. Agreed. You know, so I, I should say I one stars. I'm really, I'm really talking about the one stars. I'm really yes. talking about the places that can't charge three hundred dollars a plate, but we're still excellent, fine dining, interesting decor, Michelin standards. And I think Blackbird is the Blackbird will go the way of a lot of them. You know, a lot of these places can't socially distance, and they can't raise prices enough, and they can't bring in nice, good enough servers because they're not willing to take the risk. All the stuff we've discussed, you know. And I, I don't know. I mean, some might be able to eke it out, but like, can you have, can you have, can you have an L ideas in the COVID area? Can you have a sepia in the COVID era? Can you have all these various omakase places that <laughs> only have 15 seats anyway? So how the heck do you socially distance? Yeah. Like how do these places work in, you know, how do these one stars work? And not only that, how do they maintain their existence when they can't work for a year? Yeah. No, I think we're, we're looking at that the summer, maybe just, stalls the day of reckoning a little bit because they'll get they can have some more income from having outdoor seating some of them or whatever but still i mean the day will come that you can't sit outside in chicago and you can't you really sit inside in sufficient quantity to, for them to make money so on that cheerful note we got we all got to hope for for that vaccine coming real quick yeah i think that's right i don't know what else will save the restaurant industry Let's talk about uh, life at home. I haven't really talked to you much about what you've been up to, um, but I know you grow a lot of things. So I think that's cool because I just asked you 
questions about stuff I got in my CSA box. Um, so yeah, tell me. I grow you, a lot of things. What are you growing? I grow this a year? lot of things and I buy a lot of local stuff. I mean, that's before we talk about the garden. That's that. That is, if, if there is an unexpected silver lining to COVID, it's that people, and this includes gardeners, for at least for the moment when they were scared they were actually going to be locked in their houses focused a lot more on the sourcing of their food. And while we didn't have the sort of large scale supply chain interruptions that people in apocalyptic movies thought we might have, you know, we did have supply chain interruptions and they actually continue to have supply chain interruptions. They're just not super visible. And if we go into wave two of lockdown, we're going to have more of them. And if this lasts for months and months, we're going to have even more of them. And so one of the things that the sort of story that was told for five minutes, but hasn't really persisted in the media landscape is that every CSA farm share in Chicago exploded. You know, the one that I've subscribed to for years and years and years, which was dying. You know, they were, they, you know, we got these sad sack emails from the farmer every week talking about how numbers were down and he wasn't sure it was worth it anymore. And I think this is a requirement of all CSAs is sad sack emails from the farmer. <laughs> suddenly had literally four times the number of subscribers in two weeks and suddenly had to hire more people and everything exploded. And those subscribers appear to have actually stuck into the summer season because this was during the spring season. And this, uh, and the same thing has happened with every other CSA. I have a meat CSA. They've exploded. Um, you know, the, the farmers markets that are available are well traveled and selling very well, you know, and so in all sorts of innovative food delivery options have popped up, some of which do involve local produce. So that may be, you know, we, we, I think you and I probably have talked about before, if not, I've talked about it a ton in print, the sort of waning interest in local because people sort of got tired of doing the work you know farmers markets were on the decline csas were on the decline from where they were in say 2008 2009 and if you know restaurants are on the decline home cooking is clearly on the increase and home cooking with good ingredients from a stable supply chain is something people clearly care an enormous amount about and are willing to spend the money that they would have sent in restaurants on that. And so, like I said, I don't love to think that there has to be a silver lining from a national tragedy, but if there is, it does seem to be that farmers and uh, the farmers and the places that sell their products are actually doing pretty well. Yeah. I don't think of it as, as a silver lining to a national tragedy. I think our lifestyles are having to change and this is one of the ways that they're changing. And that's a good thing. Um, how it works. Our restaurant lives that had taken a certain form and were making certain real estate groups very wealthy uh, have to, are taking in a different form. Our eating lives are taking a different form. And, um, you know, I, I hear, you know, the people on my street, there's not many very foodie people in my neighborhood, um, but I, you know, they're joining CSAs and they're getting stuff from, you know, delivered by this or that place. Uh, there's some restaurant, you know, some guy who gets vegetables for restaurants, who's like a jobber and somebody knew him. And now there's like four or five families on my block who are getting, you know, restaurant produce delivered by this guy. Cause he's got nothing yeah. else to do. So, and I was part of a similar arrangement until like last week that had lasted for months with one, you know, a bunch of different restaurants supplying chefs to come up with some kind of arrangement. And so, yeah, it's amazing. And the innovation has been great. And the other thing is, um, if I could, you know, give a plug to my own neighborhood, 
the only farmer's market that I've been to so far is Lincoln Square Farmer's Market. But you know what? As someone who's pretty paranoid about COVID to the point where I don't love going to the grocery store, though I, I will do it, um, farmer's markets are amazing because the well-run farmer's markets are, you know, masks required, hand sanitizer at the entrance, a ton of volunteers. It's easy to social distance. It's outdoors. So once again, it's not a solution for everything. It's not a solution for big families that need to buy paper goods and garbage bags. And it's not a solution for the winter. But it's a pretty solid solution for the moment. You know, assuming we don't end up back in total lockdown and they all have to shut down, you know, I think those kinds of enterprises are really, it's a, it's a good, um, it's a good synchronicity between the things we need right now um, and a cause that's, that we'd like to see supported, right? It's, it's not forced, it's sort of natural. Well, and it's, it's made me, I mean, all of this has made me explore alternatives to, you know, I was on, I was on very typically a Mariano's and Whole Foods uh, back mm-hmm. and forth between those two. And I hardly go to either one now because Same. I mean, I'm, I'm harvest time up on Lawrence has become my standard grocery store. I'll check out. Same. Yeah. And, you know, I'll check out places you know, I, I go to H Mart and to Jongbu because we'll be looking through a cookbook and we'll just have, okay, it's going to be Japanese week. So we're going to make a bunch of Japanese stuff. And the farmer's markets are like that too. I've actually only been to Green City once. Um, I really, you know, I, I don't mean to say bad things about Green City, but it's so packed on Saturdays. And you yeah, to, I can't imagine. You have to park a million miles away anyway. So, you know, if I don't go to it, they're not going to be hurting. They got plenty of other people. Um, but it has made the me neighborhoods are where it's at. The yeah. neighborhoods are where it's at. And, the, and a lot of those small neighborhood farmers markets that frankly weren't doing very well because, you know, Green City Market is so glamorous and people love it. You know, a, a lot of people, myself included, if I'm going to be honest, you know, would forget to go to our Tuesday and Thursday local farmers market and would instead go to Green City because you could make an afternoon of it or go to the zoo or go have lunch or go to a rooftop bar or whatever uh, and do all that stuff. Now that, you know, I don't want to be around crowds of glamorous people buying one apple uh, and would much rather get real food three blocks from my house. I'm going to my neighborhood markets and so is everybody else because they're packed and not packed in a scary way, packed in a, I think, appropriately socially distanced way, but even socially distanced, like there's more people than there were last year at this time. In a, in a good way. Yeah, so. I never, <laughs> any of the ones I've been to like that, and I've been to Lincoln Square as well, and, and to Lincoln Park, the one in the parking lot of Lincoln Park High School, which is where Green yep. City actually started way back when. Um, yep. But they, uh, you know, they're much easier to go to because there aren't the big crowds. And you're not having to fight your way too close to people to get the things now they don't have near the selection i did have to go to green city to get english peas because i wanted to make you know english pea and mint soup um but otherwise i mean if i want good strawberries <laughs> or you know right now oh, or whatever they're yeah it's they're easy enough to get so so the thing that if you want to talk about the way that impacts the gardening universe this is hilarious like i feel like you know a lot of us you know, especially, you know, the Peterson Garden folks who are now the City Grange folks have been like beating the drum of urban gardening so loud and for so long that you kind of, you know, almost can't hear it anymore. (laughs) And it's not that it's not popular and slowly growing in popularity, and it totally is. And I mean, it's not going anywhere. But holy moly, did everyone decide to garden this year in a way that like was unbelievable. So like you went to, you know, garden stores or garden websites or all these kinds of things. And every place was sold out of every seed you could think of, every transplant you could think of, you know, and I get that some of that was supply chain interruption, but most of it was just 
every single store that I had any connection with just went sold clean of everything. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and so that, once again, you know, when people are thinking about their food chain, well, they've got a backyard so that has something to do with your food chain. And so what we did manage to, my boyfriend and I managed to crimp together a pretty awesome garden this year, but I will tell you a lot of that was because of stuff I ordered before COVID. And a lot of that was because of stuff I've sort of picked apart here and there and, or stood in very, very long lines to get because the, 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 uh, the, the enthusiasm for gardening is just like nothing I've ever seen before. Right. I have earth boxes on my deck. And so one of them is just this forest of lettuce. It's really been quite beautiful. Uh, and, you know, I've we've been cutting our own salads almost every night and I've given lettuce away and all that. Uh, one of them is mostly herbs. I have an enormous bush of dill at this point. For some reason, I, I don't think I knew how fast that grew, but it's kind of taking everything. Oh, God. Um, yeah, I, I always put dill. Dill and mint are the two that always go in their own pots and not in my herb boxes. So otherwise, uh, they just eat everything. Uh, but yeah, so, I've got like basil. Watch out for that. And, yeah, basil and sage and stuff like that in that one. So, you know, a lot of everyday stuff. I mean, it's it's really nice to not go buy the bubble pack of basil every five days that goes bad I so know. quickly. But just to have it there freshly for you when you need it. Um, so, but that's, that's my fairly minimal growing. You're growing more ambitious stuff. Pineapples, <laughs> I am. I, think, I have a fairly you? large, I, yes, exactly. Pineapples and orange trees. No, I have a pretty ambitiously sized garden for the lot that I have, which is not a very big lot, yeah. but you know, I have, uh, you know, three ginormous beds and then earth boxes scattered everywhere that gets enough sun to have them. And the nice thing in combined with the gardening enthusiasm of the moment is we've had an amazing year in terms of weather. For most crops, it's not been, we had no sun, we had no spring. So for anything that was cool weather required, there isn't any. There's a reason why people, you have not seen peas at farmer's markets, except for very small quantities of them. Usually we'd be drowning in, in, um, in snap peas and you were not drowning in snap peas and it's because there was no weather for them. Um, similarly, there's some other sort of springish crops that didn't really get much of a season. That said, the summer crops are going nuts. Like I'm already harvesting cucumbers, zucchinis, tomatoes, similarly, lettuces and greens. My collard greens have exploded. I planted a much larger onion patch this year and it turns out that was a good thing. Talking about the things where six months ago, you know, every day, potentially, I would have walked down to the local grocery store because I forgot the garlic or I forgot an onion. I don't really want to do that. And so having a ginormous patch of them in the backyard that I can just, you know, thin them as I go and have things that I need. Um, I'm growing four boxes of herbs this year. And same thing, I haven't had to buy a single herb from the grocery store since March. Uh, and so, and I, I'll say it's pretty low maintenance. You know, it's not like I'm some kind of green thumbed aficionado. I'm not actually that great a gardener. I'm, I break all the rules. I don't rotate my crops. I forget to fertilize things. I forget to water half the time. You know, I'm, I'm not someone who has a garden book collection, you know, all those things. I just kind of transplant things into the ground and put some water on it and hope for the best. And about 80% of the time it works out. And when the weather cooperates, it really works out. And so, you know, it's, it's been a really nice thing to see that, you know, it's not just a vanity project. It actually has some real benefits in terms of peace of mind and uh, staying at home. And, and especially when you were in the real stay at home order, when we were locked down, the ability to go out into the backyard or even onto the front porch with my boxes and do a little bit of weeding and get your hands dirty was like a tonic. And in those few weeks when we were literally scared to like walk around the neighborhood or maybe not everyone was, but I was uh, being able to do that kind of work was just so unbelievably comforting 
that, you know, if, it, if, if we get back to that point in a month and a half, I will be spending an enormous amount of time sitting in my garden. Yeah, no, I know. It, it was, it was that moment when, I mean, we kind of competed to walk the dog because it was a chance to get outside, <laughs> which has never happened before or since. Um, yeah. I, so, so tell me what kind of things have you been cooking? So that's interesting. I will say, I, I think I did with cooking what every single person in America did with various things during quarantine. Everyone said, oh my goodness, now is the time I'm finally going to do X. I'm finally going to learn the ukulele. I'm finally going <laughs> to do a thousand pushups. I'm finally going to read the complete collection of Shakespeare, you know, whatever it is. And I don't know a single person who did any of those things because of a combination of human nature, anxiety, and life still gets in the way, even if you're locked in quarantine. Right. So I'm just happy. I haven't become a total alcoholic in quarantine. So I did buy a bunch of quarantine cookbooks. Like I, I have these, like four or five beautiful new cookbooks that I bought and I've cooked a little bit out of it. Inspired by you. I actually bought the, the Otolenghi, uh, simple. I actually bought the two book series. I bought Simple and Plenty More. And I've cooked out of it. And I even went on Amazon and bought the like, you know, things that you can't get at your local grocery store from the the index at the back of the book. And that's been great. And I had big ambitions that I was going to cook through half the book. And I've probably cooked from it three times. You know, I got Paul Kahn's new cookbook, which is less new now, but was new to me. And, you know, I've cooked two or three times from it. What I've really been doing is just cooking a lot of standards, cooking a lot of, you know, my recipes and cooking a lot of um, use up ingredients recipes, as I refer to them. The problem with cooking out of cookbooks is they require you to bring in more ingredients. Yes. And when you have a garden and a farm share, you don't want to be bringing in more ingredients. You want to be emptying your fridge into the stew pot. And th that's, I will say the one book I've been cooking out of a ton, but it's the same book I cooked out of a ton last year, which is, um, and I'm trying to, I'm, that's Ruffage, right? The, the, our Baron's book. And that's because it's arranged by vegetable that comes into season in the Midwest. And so, oh God, the farm share gave me four pounds of radishes. What do I do? I turn to the radish section, yeah. right? And so that book has actually been one of my, uh, one of my coronavirus saviors, even though it's now a year old versus sort of the place, the things that require more exotic ingredients. I do it occasionally, but I just can't justify going out and spending $50 on groceries when I have, you know, a thousand pounds of produce that is slowly dying in my fridge. <laughs> yeah. The Japanese phase resulted in like 11 new bottles that had to fit in <laughs> right? somewhere, you know, so I have tonkatsu sauce and Kewpie mayo and, you know, oh, house-made tare and all these things that I, I had to deal with. Um, yeah. I haven't, I just got my first CSA box, the one I use, Urban uh, Autism Solutions, down in the medical medical district. Um, I just got the first one, so it hasn't been a, uh-oh, what do I do with these moment yet. But yes, roughage is where I'm going to turn. Although I noticed last year, I learned last year, even she doesn't know what to, the hell to do with patty pan squash. There's just nothing to be done with it. <laughs> I yeah I agree with you that the, my equivalent of patty pan squash is parsnips. Yeah. Um, I had a couple of weeks from my CSA where I feel like I got nothing but parsnips, and I just kept putting them into my crisper drawers until they just became parsnip drawers. And I I'm at a loss. They're just inferior carrots. Like they're just not very good carrots that are a different color. Yeah. And I know there's all sorts of things to do with them, and you can mash them, and you can roast them, and you can saute them, and blah blah blah. And I've done every single one of those things, and I still don't. I don't not like them, but I still would rather cook a carrot. You know, my mom, who grew up in the tail end of the Depression, uh, 
I was at Whole Foods with her once when she was visiting like 10 years ago, and I started to get some parsnips because I was going to make chicken stock, and I use them in mm-hmm. that. She's like, parsnips? What do you want those for? You know, she just had <laughs> these Depression-era memories of you eat that because there isn't any real food around, so... And I can say I totally sympathize with her. And I ended up, and, and that, by the way, that's sort of the, the other thing. And I think I wrote this when I wrote a quick article about like, so now you bought a, you, you panic bought a CSA. Now what the hell do you do? And one <laughs> yeah. of one of the things that you really do have to do, and I, I say this over and over again to almost everybody I talk to, is you know what? Get a compost bucket and stop feeling bad about it. Because if you end up beating yourself up about not using stuff, you're going to get a sour taste of the entire experience, and you're going to feel miserable. And you, you know what? You spend farmer. a little extra money. Exactly. The money went to the farmer. You know, you, you got a good price on it. Even if you threw away some of it, you still got a good price on the rest of it. And you're probably someone who can afford it if you're buying CSAs seasons at a time. So stop worrying about it. Right. Yeah. Just, you know what? Throw the stuff out if it starts to get weird in your fridge. Don't feel bad about it. Don't look up 16 recipes for how to use up moldy radish greens and just let it go. Kohlrabi. <laughs> just let it go and smile. I have no it. idea what oh. to do with kohlrabi. I'm going to say the exact same thing that everyone says, which is apparently you make slaw out of it. Have I ever done that? No. Have I published multiple recipes about that? Oh, yeah. Um, and I've still never actually tried it. It's yeah. just that's like the thing when you Google how to use kohlrabi. It's all kohlrabi and apple slaw. And I'm sure that works. But the weird UFO vegetable has just languished in my fridge until I get tired of looking at it. I've never used it, ever. Yeah. That's, I, in fact, had basically kohlrabi slaw is a salad but you know same basic principle at daisies when i when i went out which brings us to another thing yes. actually going to restaurants i went to a restaurant you're such a rebel you're I such know. a rebel i have not even ventured out for outdoor dining yet i have done some of the interesting takeout options but i've not done any outdoor dining yet so i can't ask you how you feel about it except apparently you you don't want to do it yet well, I think there's a couple things. And, you know, I think most people who have, who have families probably can have some uh, engagement with the, the thought process. You know, I was lucky enough that back in March, I sort of locked down with a team of people, um, not a very large one. You know, there was four or five of us, but we, we sort of saw the writing on the wall in early March and said, gosh, we're all going to lose our minds unless we, you know, make some strict rules, but only seeing each other. Right. And that's been really great. And it's been made the whole process easier. We've cooked a lot of potluck dinners, you know, probably violated the rules against only seeing two or more people, but in a super safe way. And I'm not concerned about it. But what that does mean is in terms of safety guidelines, you tend towards the most cautious person, because if someone in the group says, I'm immunocompromised, or I don't really feel comfortable with the way that every place is facing its tables, you know, the whole group, at least while it's still a group, kind of, you know, goes towards that end of the spectrum. And so I must admit that there are some places where I think I would be comfortable, but we haven't sort of unlocked on that spectrum yet. You know, I think that it's likely that there are a couple places that I've seen doing really good spacing, you know, like Bistro Campania, my favorite is doing its patio dining. And I would probably do that because their tables were already socially distanced before the lockdown. You know, I think, you know, some places that I enjoy that were already outdoor dining places like Fountainhead have reopened for, um, for patio stuff. For me, there's also another aspect of this besides the safety, which is that I don't, this is awful. And I feel like restaurateurs are going to lynch me because this is exactly what they don't want to hear. But I, I don't want to have a half-assed restaurant experience. Like I'd almost rather eat at home than have a half-assed restaurant experience where I'm feeling vaguely nervous and being served by people in masks. And I'm a food writer who loves dining out. And I feel that way. And I imagine some of the public probably does too. Yeah. I mean, that's, that is how I feel. I, I went to Daisy's. I mean, Daisy's was already one of my favorite restaurants. It's, it's, you know, such a, 
great farm to table, just honest and honest and good place. And yeah. so I went to that. It was good, although we had to move once because it was raining and back, you know, all those things. Chicago is not, you know, not going to cooperate weather-wise with the desire of restaurateurs to try and recreate their their experience. And I have a reservation forever in August. And ever will be, you know, things will be far enough apart, will be far enough apart at the table from each other that, you know, I, I'm okay with that. But, and part of it is just, you know, you pick certain risks. You know, every time you get in a car, it's a certain risk. But that's twice in a month and a half. And I don't know if there's going to be anything in between that. I'm, I feel bad for restaurants, but I don't know that I'm, that I'm going to need to sit in a restaurant or that I'm going to feel comfortable in a restaurant. And I don't, I'm not, I'm neither proud of that nor do I feel like being self-righteous about it. It's just where my comfort level sits. And No, I think that's right. And I think that's what's, what's concerning to me on an existential sense for the industry is you and I are both people who eat out a lot and clearly love it. That's an important part of our identity. It's an important part of, of, of what we do and what we like to do. And we're not doing it even when it's possible. Like it's like vaguely possible now and we're not really doing it. And I don't, obviously places are packed. I don't think the places that are packed right now are the ones that we're super concerned about. I think, you know, Wrigleyville bars are packed and then, you know, <laughs> federal is probably doing pretty well, right. but like, you know, I think that a lot of the people who are the audience for some of the places that we love probably feel like we do and probably don't want to remember, you know, we don't want to remember our friend on their deathbed. We want to remember our friend when they were happy and vital. You know, that's sort of how I feel a little bit about some of these places. I don't want my last memory of a restaurant I love to be a sort of messed up, not quite right dining experience and masks. You know, I hope they make it. And I know that I'm contributing to them not making it, which is part of the reason I am constantly morally conflicted, but I don't want to take the risk. And I don't really want to have that, that sad experience. Well, and also, I mean, I've, I've rearranged my life around the dinner I'm going to cook or occasionally the dinner I'm going to pick up. I mean, like I'm getting thought to tonight. Um, but mostly, you know, I went, I went to Daisy's market on Sunday and I came home with stuff, which I cooked yesterday and things like that. So I'm not really thinking about dinner out that much. You know, if there's a night I just don't feel like cooking, you know, then I'll order Thai food or a pizza or something. But I do, so I'm more likely to go out at lunch and go get sandwiches for everybody from JT's or, you know, Hermosa or somewhere like that. Uh, but yeah, so I'm, I am sort of reoriented away from nicer dining experiences that would require me to sit somewhere and be subject to whatever may happen in that space. The guy who, you know, rips his mask off and says it's all a lie. And, you know, Dr. Fauci is a, is an agent of the lizard people or whatever. <laughs> or, or the, you know, the attorneys without their guns and start pointing them at you as they shot. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, but yeah. that's also, that's also the thing, right? Is like, you do, you do worry about that. You do worry about you, you place, you know, you always, you always placed your life in your hands, in someone else's hands when you went out to die. You know, you really did. You placed your life in the hands of the chefs and their food service training and, you know, all that kind of stuff. But the worst that was likely to happen to you in absence of lettuce-borne E. coli epidemic was maybe you got a tiny bit sick and even that wasn't very common. Now you are literally putting your life in the hands of the chefs, the servers, and your fellow diners, and that's new. You know, you never had to worry about your fellow diners giving you food poisoning. Now you have to worry about your fellow <laughs> right. diners, right? And so it's a whole other level of risk. And I, I, I think that 
you know, as I said to you before recording, you know, three weeks ago when Illinois numbers were trending towards the, a flat bottom, I think I was actually sort of thinking about like, oh, where's my first in-person, in-house dining going to be? Even at 25%, I'll make some reservations. And now that the numbers are back up, I realize how fragile my own sense of security is. You know, how much we've all been trained to be shell-shocked by these, these numbers and how much our emotional attunement has become attached to the numbers and the news and the stories. And I, I, I'm not suggesting that's wrong. I think maybe that's right. But the problem is my emotional attunement is making me paranoid right now because the numbers are back up. And so all those thoughts of in-house dining are on hold. And maybe yeah. in a month, my attitude will go back to normal and maybe it won't. I don't know. It depends on right. things beyond my control. Well, yeah, you don't, you don't go out to fret. You go out to relax. No. And exactly. that's the hard thing that the industry is, has no control over. They, they, there's nothing they can do that they're not already doing to get back to the idea that going out is this totally relaxing thing. And I'm sorry for that. So I don't know. Yeah, I mean, there's it's, nothing to do about it. Yeah. I mean, it's making me think about a lot of things. I mean, one of them is I really need to work on this book that I have, although <laughs> it's, you know, it's going to, it's a weird thing to be talking about the history of Chicago dining as it goes away. You know, I do wonder though, you know, I think, I think this, and this is the one place where I get a little bit hopeful and this isn't, it's not really hopeful because it's so disturbing about so many people's dreams and investments being destroyed, but there is a pool of, let's assume two years, let's do worst case scenario. And we don't get a vaccine for, you know, a year and a half. And frankly, most of the places that we love cease to exist. And, you know, some manage to struggle on with limited in-person dining or takeout kits or whatever, you know, and, and it's a real tragedy. And a lot of people lose their life savings and their investments and everything else. And it's really bad. There's still, once this is over, going to be a demand for great dining. There's going to be a demand for great drinking. There's going to be a demand for cool spaces. And equally still, there's going to be an amazing pool of creative people who either have been itching to get back into the game or have been managing to maintain a game of some kind. And so, you know, I think that on the one hand, it's going to be genuinely tragic. It's going to be horrifying. It's going to be awful. I'm not suggesting that should be minimized. On the other hand, like most cases where there's an artificial wiping clean of the slate, there's, I, I hope maybe the flip side of this is there's going to be an enormous amount of opportunity for enterprising creative people. You know, once it's okay, there's going to be a lot of empty spaces. There's going to be a lot of employees who are willing to, you know, willing to come to work or looking for work. There's going to be a lot of creative chefs who have cool ideas for what they want to do. And, and this is the thing that I think is really important. If what's going on now in the economy is any indication, there probably is actually going to be a lot of people who have money to invest. Because the thing that I've been seeing and hearing from my colleagues who admittedly are in the sort of white collar workforce is that the recession that we're seeing is hitting really badly the lower levels. And those of us who are sort of white collar work from home people aren't yet, I want to say yet because it may change, aren't yet being slammed that horribly bad. And a lot of us are kind of sitting on our cash and waiting. And so I, I wonder if there's going to be a sort of big different wave that will sweep the landscape circa 2022 between the creative people, the empty spaces and the available capital. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I'm tempted to set up a, a uh, guillotine in front of your house after hearing that comment that uh, it's only affecting the lower orders. It's not no, no, no. I think it's affecting. <laughs> I want to be clear what I mean by that. I think it's affecting everybody pretty badly. I've taken a pretty hefty pay cut myself. What I'm saying is I think that there is, as you can see from the fact that the stock market keeps yo-yoing up and down, that most companies are not going bankrupt. I think there's still going to be a pool of people out there who have money not only to spend on dining, but money to invest on dining. And there's going to be a lot of enterprising people who 
are going to figure out ways to do it at affordable prices and in affordable spaces. And so what I'm suggesting is you're going to see a really interesting new wave of stuff open. Yeah, no, I think that's that's true. And at the same time, it's sort of like telling Bambi during the forest fire that it's actually a good thing. Uh, and I know. don't want to imply that at all. It's not a good thing. It's a horrible thing. And that's, but it's, it's awful. It's and places reality. that I love are going to die. Yeah, it but is. But the reality is that there's probably going to be. And and here's the thing. Most of those people, most of those people who are brilliant and creative and interesting and engaged in this industry, you hope aren't going to disappear. They will have a couple bad years, they'll have a couple quiet years, but just like every chef we see who who loses their job or whose restaurant folds or who has financial disaster often comes back and does something amazing and creative, a lot of those same people are going to exist and their creativity and talent is going to still exist. And so once it's possible for them to have outlets, they're going to have outlets and they're going to do amazing things and we're still going to see these people. Yeah. Um, I'm already nervous about the response from people who hear us uh, <laughs> feel free, talking feel about free to cut it out. It's the, no, I mean, it, I, I think it's true. I think it's something anyone would recognize. There will be new opportunities when all this is over. It's still going to be sad, the things we lose on the way. Um, and that's the real message that's important, I think. And that's that, if I was going to edit it, that's what I would. That's what I would stick with. I don't necessarily know that we need to talk about, but you you understand what I'm saying, right? Which yeah, that, oh yeah, yeah. You know, just like in every in every giant sort of extinction event, be it natural or capitalistic, you know, there's there's disaster, and then there's also opportunity. And I don't mean vulture opportunity. I mean you know, scrappy. There'll be some of that. Yeah. All right. So people don't cancel Anthony. He's okay. <laughs> or do cancel me. It's or fine. I don't write you. Anymore, Whatever. So I've effectively been canceled. Right. People... Uh, uh, so, no, I, I, mean, I, I hope I'm not permanently canceled. You know, I think obviously what we haven't talked about we're all, very much is we're the, all canceled. Uh, we're effect... all canceled. Well, I don't, I don't mean metaphorically. I mean, you know, obviously the effect on the media landscape has been just as bad as the effect on the restaurant landscape. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's pretty bad. So, just hoping although, that bounces back. Uh, although I am going to say for one second, I, I really kind of hate that the response of some people was to start going after restaurants when they're down. Um, now I understand what they're going after and I don't disagree with that, but the viciousness of it, uh, aimed at so many restaurants just seems kind of nasty. I think there's, there's a couple sides of this. You know, I, I actually feel much more sympathetic to someone like Mike Sula than I do necessarily to the uh, individuals trying to cancel restaurants. And that's not because I don't sympathize with those individuals. It's because I can't empathize with them. I'm not in their shoes. I do. I have found myself in Sula's shoes. And by that, what I mean is I have had many experiences where I have watched uh, people behave not mildly unprofessionally, not bad temper, not, you know, little bits and pieces, but people behave genuinely unforgivably or who I've, you know, we, everyone in the industry knows is an unforgivably horrible person. And yet we continue writing great stories about them because for whatever reason, either be, we want access or we like their food or they have a cool restaurant or whatever. And I think that for me, that's the part of this that I am trying to take away from it is, is I'm, it's not my job to cancel somebody or not, but I think that, um, I am more likely after all of this to spend a lot less time and energy worrying about that stuff and a lot more time and energy saying, you know what? I don't care if you're opening a really cool restaurant. I know you're a terrible person and I'm not, I'm not going to write the story about you unless my editor is forcing me to. And so that's the place where I feel uh, empathy is this sense that we were all forced to just sort of ignore that stuff. And I think, you know, maybe this, if it's done anything good is it's empowered people to exercise a little bit more of their own judgment and to say, you know what, actually, 
I don't feel the need to, I don't feel the need to engage with you or your project. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's a couple of people you could probably guess that I feel that way about. Um, but for me, I'm just more inclined not to engage with things that I don't find interesting or helpful. You know, when the, when the big chain or the chain from out of town or whatever opens the cookie cutter place, you know, it'll be an eater. It doesn't need me. I don't need to go write, write about how you're reinventing the taco with stupid sex joke names and, and dumbass toppings or something like that. Um, you know, you'll get all the publicity you need and you'll get the dumb bros in there and, and all of that. So, you know, that's when I want to find something else and write about it anyway. I have very mixed feelings about how much I need to think about the particular political inclinations or even the behavior of places that I'm just going for to get $8 worth of food at. Um, you know, there was that thing of people trying to roast the land birds guys for not having put something up about black lives matter. And to me, that's just the mafia extorting something out of somebody, you know, it's like, it's a, it's a chicken wing place. It does not have public policy. It has chicken wings. (laughs) My version of that is a little different. You know, I, I do, I do think restaurants have politics and I think they exercise them in little ways all the time, be it the way they treat their workers, the people who they hire, the way they pay people. You know, there's lots of places where restaurants have a direct impact on politics. You know, maybe posting a sign might not be one of them, though for some restaurants, depending on on what they're doing and who they're working with, maybe it is. My version of that is I've always been, you know, I've always been more of a fan of the marketplace of ideas approach to this, which is to not say be apathetic and to not say uh, you shouldn't pay attention to these things. It's to say you're a consumer and you're perfectly willing to say what you want and spend where you want. And if you want to support businesses that have a certain set of political beliefs and express them loudly, you know, you, you should do that. And that may mean that certain businesses at different moments in time, you know, do better. There were definitely businesses that expressed support for, for gay rights during the whole, you know, gay bakers disaster scandal with, with the court system that I felt important. It was to support people who said, you know, look, God, we never would do anything like this. And the ones that sort of conspicuously didn't say anything, I was like, oh, that's interesting. That doesn't necessarily mean they should be canceled. And that's the place where I share your discomfort a little bit, which is this idea that uh, any place that doesn't do exactly what the right thing of the moment is should face a reckoning. My version of that is more, you know, people should absolutely be able to criticize restaurants. They should be able to criticize restaurant owners. They should be able to spend money and encourage others to spend money where they want to and not spend it where they want to. And I, I would hope that if there was genuine ills behind these things, they, they work themselves out. And we've seen that in other contexts where places that are, are vile die. They die because word spreads that they're vile. You know, they don't die because they got dragged on Instagram for a week and they don't die generally because of an expose. They die because there's a public consensus that they're vile and they deserve to die. (laughs) And so that sort of tends to be my approach to it much more than the sort of instant, let's try to instantly get someone wiped off the map because of a momentary problem. Yeah. There's, there's like a, a Euros place not far from me and he's near a high school. And I've seen him being really abusive to the kids from the high school. And I'm sure he's just like, he's had him in there every day for 20 years and he's gone nuts. 
And, but I'm, but I don't want to go there with my kids cause I don't want them to see that. I mean, I haven't been there in so long and I'm talking about them as little kids, which they aren't anymore. But you know, when my kids were say 10 and seven, I didn't want to see the, see a guy. I want them to see a guy acting like that toward other customers. So I don't go to that. What I don't, agree with is expecting Eddie at Landbirds that he has to have a position on Black Lives Matters. He's a guy running a little hole in the wall that has chicken wings. There's no reason to think think he thinks one way or the other. Let him be. You know, I'm just... Well, and, and once again, if you're doing, if you have these positions, you absolutely should trumpet them to the rooftops and sometimes that'll make you unpopular and you'll have to make decisions about what you're going to do. And sometimes in certain moments that's going to make you very popular and it's going to make you, and hopefully you're sticking to your principles and you're, you're not shifting with the wind, but you know, I think but of course people are where of course they are. And that's, that's frustrating when you see people who you, you absolutely know have an all white kitchen or you absolutely know have never hired a woman in a leadership position. And they're talking about this kind of stuff and maybe they are getting dragged because people know the real story. Maybe they're not getting dragged because people are buying the sign outside the restaurant. I think that's where, you know, the, maybe hopefully the reporting part of our lives comes in because some of these things are frustrating, but I, I return to the point, which is that if you are uh, a principled place that's expressing your principles and they're real, you know, you'll attract the customers that feel strongly about that stuff. And hopefully that those two things connect and that's good. That's how it should work. Um, and, you know, I don't necessarily, I agree with you and that I don't necessarily feel the need that someplace that has not entered the fray. Now, as long as it's not, we've not entered the fray because we're hiding a massive racist, sexist disaster right. in the back of the house that's waiting for someone to expose, which we both know is the truth about in plenty of places over the years and over the industry. But if all you're doing is saying, this is not my fight, I might decide I don't want to shop there. And that's totally fine. But I'm probably not going to say someone should burn it down. Like that's, yeah. that's sort of where I fall on this. It's don't shop there. If you feel that, if you feel this is so important for an industry space to take a stand on, don't shop at places that don't. And if you have convinced your friends not to shop at places that don't, and we'll see where the chips fall. But, you know, but the flip side of that too, is the people who do talk about things and really work hard at it and are totally sincere, like Josh and Christine of Honey Butter, they come in for it too anyway. I mean, it's, there's really that, that attitude of nothing is ever enough. Whatever you've done, it is never enough. And that, I will say that really did frustrate me. Seeing, seeing, seeing Josh and Christine get dragged and watching their apologies, and I think they're very sincere apologies. And if you actually went and read all of the stuff, and I, I, I must admit one night late at night, I went and read every Instagram comment and every comment I could find about the stuff that they were going through. And it does seem that they had a problem and that it may have partially been their fault, but the best I could determine from my investigator brain, which is what I do for a real living, was that they had a really bad couple of lower level managers who may actually have been guilty of a lot of stuff that has been complained about. And maybe they didn't do a very good job of managing them. But, you know, I don't see, I didn't see any indication that they themselves were guilty of all of these various things. I can't and imagine frankly, it, knowing them. I can't imagine it either. And also then that's where I think you get to what you were just saying, which is you look at a place that has, you know, made it incredibly vocal about raising the minimum wage, but incredibly vocal about giving health insurance to employees, being incredibly vocal about charging what food actually costs rather than trying to shift costs all over the place so that the customer doesn't look like they're paying money and that the employees suffer. And, you know, I think those are the places. It has been out front on all sorts of genuine progressive causes, be it, be it, sanctuary restaurants or be it, you know, gender equality in the workplace, you know, et cetera. So those are the places that I agree with you. The collateral damage to those places really makes my stomach turn. You know, I think that's the situation where obviously people, if they 
have experienced horrible things at the restaurant should feel free to talk about it. But there is this sort of cancel culture collateral damage to not just innocent people, but actually genuinely good people who are activists in the right direction. And that does make me terribly angry. Well, yeah. I mean, I just saw something uh, about the whole John T. Edge controversy, which was in the New York Times this week. And someone saying, you need to be accountable for the harm you have done. And it's like the harm John T. Edge has done is focus attention on Southern food for 20 years, including on a lot of African-American chefs. But nothing is ever enough for these people. And, you know, framing framing a life of you know, thoughtful service to a culture like that as the harm you have done. I mean, to me that I just want to punch that in the face. I'm sorry. As a pragmatist, as a pragmatist, I do get uncomfortable with the sort of politics of the taintedness, right? Where, you know, we don't make a distinction because the thing you're being tainted with is so horrifying. We don't make a distinction between someone who's tainted 5%. And by that, I mean, it's made legitimate, maybe legitimate mistakes, but has lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of redeeming qualities and someone who's tainted completely irredeemably and like, you know, is the Baltimore police department. Right. And so, you know, I think that to me, that makes me deeply uncomfortable. Yeah. I don't know. He's not, he's not even tainted. You know, he is, he's human and it's not even like, there's nothing you can point to except you can just say it's not enough. He did this much of this and he should have done that much. Well, and we, and we, once again, once again, the contrast there is you have, you have someone like that who did amazing work, including work that benefited community, diverse communities. Right. Yeah. And then you have someone like, you know, Adam Rappaport, who is apparently by all accounts, genuinely odious, right? right? Like genuinely bad person and did exactly the things for which people are being canceled and deserves it. Well, right, yeah, no. <laughs> and that's another thing. It's like if you didn't spot that the top of Bon Appetit was the scumbags in the first place, you didn't see enough John Hughes movies in which he would have been played by James Spader. So, you know, it's like, yeah, the preppy assholes are assholes. Surprise. <laughs> and as someone who considers himself one of those people, uh, as you put it, uh, and I do, I, mean, I, I consider myself about which, as far which into this issue as possible. The people who feel very, very strongly about everything that's being discussed right now in the context of Black Lives Matter and racial equality and protests and everything else, you know, I, I'm devoting hours defending protesters who got arrested by CPD because I care about it so much. That's my pro bono work. But that said, I think that there is still a, a, as with every movement and every moment, there is a little bit of a pendulum swing that's going a little tiny bit too far, completely understandably given the complete and utter piles of bullshit and trash that everybody involved in this situation has had to deal with for generations. I can't say that I am super surprised or even super negative about the fact that pendulum is swinging too far because holy crap, when people get beaten down and told they don't have anything to say for years and years and years and years and years and years and years, ad infinitum, they're going to explode. And that's on the rest of the universe who maintains these institutions. But that doesn't mean you can't point out instances where it's going too far. And you can't point out instances where you think it's mistaken. And you can't point out instances where people of consequence and good conscience are being caught up in, in a bad situation. And I think you're, this is pointing out instances where somebody sees a chance at a power grab. Luckily, you can't be fired. You can't be fired and you can't be canceled. I, however, can be fired and canceled. <laughs> um, so that's what I'm kind of already fired. Not fired. I'm already laid off and I doubt that I'm ever coming back. So, um, 
well, I won't say that, but you know, I can't imagine that Chicago Magazine is going to restart their food coverage until there's food to cover, which means until restaurants reopen, I feel like I'm kind of in the deep freeze. Thanks for listening to Food Eater Radio is all dressed up and has no place to go. And thanks to my guest, Anthony Todd. Music is by Kevin McLeod. This series is over for now, but subscribe to Food Eater Radio anyway at the podcast app of your choice so you don't miss whatever happens next. Thanks for listening and chat with you again sometime. In a garden... Growth has its season. First comes spring and summer, but then we have fall and winter. And then we get spring and summer again. Spring and summer? Yes. <laughs>